Acts chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you bless our time together tonight, Lord, as we have fun studying your word, learning the scriptures, Lord, and then applying them to our lives. Give us willing hearts tonight, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts teaches us that the work of Jesus did not cease when he ascended into heaven. The book of Acts records what Jesus continued to teach and do through his disciples. Acts traces the expansion of Christianity in the days of the early church. The story begins in the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. It ends in the Gentile capital of Rome. Acts explains how the Jewish Messiah became the Lord and Savior of the Gentiles. Guys, it is absolutely essential that we study the church in Acts chapter, well, throughout the book of Acts. For there has never been a more successful period of church history than in the book of Acts. In a single generation, the church spread the gospel around the world, throughout the whole known world of their day. And understand their success was all accomplished without the 21st century helps that we rely on so often. There was no technology, no transportation, no money, no marketing plans, no buildings and buses. And yet through the word of God, through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through a daring faith, these people turned their world upside down for Jesus. In the mid-1960s, when the Billy Graham crusade came to a segregate, the segregated city of Montgomery, Alabama, Dr. Graham insisted that the choir contain both blacks and whites. A bigoted editorial the next day in the local newspaper complained that Graham's decision had set the church back a hundred years. Well, Billy Graham responded, If that's the case, I failed in my mission, for I intended to set it back 2,000 years. The church today needs to recapture the fire and spark of the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with chapter 28, but the Acts of Jesus, you need to understand this, continue today as the living Lord Jesus carries on His work through you and I, through followers filled with the Holy Spirit. We begin the book, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus. Legend has it that the day he was born, the doctor held him up and then shook his head and said to his mom, Ma'am, This is the awfulest looking baby I have ever seen in my life. And the awfulest, and and you know the name just sort of stuck, Theophilus. Actually, the word Theophilus means friend of God. Evidently, he was a friend of Luke as well. And it was to him that Luke addressed these personal reports. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that following his resurrection, Jesus lingered on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. This is why no one in the first century seriously questioned the legitimacy of the resurrection because there were so many eyewitnesses. Luke calls all of these sightings of the risen Christ many infallible proofs. 
Jesus knew the faith of future generations would hinge on the testimony of these eyewitnesses who had seen him after his death, who were firsthand eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And thus he made the evidence so undeniable, so irrefutable, so clear and conclusive that no one would be able to discredit the testimony. Guys, tonight, the foundation of our faith is laid on many infallible proofs. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, to reach the world with the gospel of his grace. But the disciples were not quite ready to be dispatched on this mission. Understand now, these were men experienced in ministry. They had a knowledge of the Bible. They were committed to the cause. They had spent time with Jesus and they were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there was one thing they still lacked. There was one missing ingredient and that was the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus told them to gather in the upper room. He told them to hang out in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 8 says, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Understand there are three experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit. Before we're saved, he is with us, leading us and drawing us to Jesus. When we're saved, he comes to live in us. He takes up residence inside us. But once we become Christians, we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us and baptize us, infuse us with power. It is this upon experience that as we find in the case of Peter and all of the disciples, it turns wimps into witnesses. It creates more than just spiritual goosebumps. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to give us spiritual boldness. Every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. But not every Christian has the Holy Spirit has the Holy Spirit come upon them. Not every Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. We need this divine empowerment. We need to open our hearts and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. After Jesus spoke to his disciples of the Holy Spirit's power, we're told in verse 9, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus' body began to rise from the earth and he literally ascended into the heavens. This was a vital event. This was Jesus' homecoming. He proved, it proved, the ascension approved that his father had accepted his suffering and his sacrifice. That the father had considered his mission a success. The ascension is a very important event. And as Jesus ascended into heaven, two angels deliver a message. The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. At the rapture, Jesus will again come in the clouds to snatch away those who trust in him. He will return for us the same way that he left us. After Jesus' ascension, 120 disciples assemble in the upper room. And it's Peter who assumes leadership and suggests that they find a replacement for Judas. Remember back in Matthew chapter 27, verse 7, we were told that Judas hung himself. Here in chapter 1, verse 18, Luke says that Judas fell headlong and punctured or perforated his abdomen. Apparently, he did hang himself, but 
Perhaps the limb of the tree broke and he fell on the rocks below, thus fulfilling both Matthew's prophecy and Luke's prophecy here in Acts. In verse 20, Peter quotes Psalm 109 verse 8. He says, let another take his office. And the disciples selected two candidates, Barsabbas and Matthias. They then cast lots or rolled the dice more or less. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was recognized as Judas's replacement as the twelfth apostle. Peter was correct. A replacement was needed. But whether it was their duty to decide the replacement or not was another matter. I personally believe that they were a bit impulsive. Doesn't that surprise you when it comes to Peter? I think they got ahead of the game just a little bit. I think they jumped the gun. God did have his own choice for a replacement for Judas. But I personally believe that he intended the Apostle Paul to be the twelfth apostle. Here is a good example, perhaps, of the dangers of getting ahead of God. It's interesting, this is the last time you will see believers casting lots or throwing out fleeces are resorting to gimmicks and gadgets for guidance. After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the church depended upon the Spirit Himself to speak to their needs and to guide their steps. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th. And it was to be celebrated on the day after the seventh week, after the Sabbath during the Passover, or 50 days after that Sabbath. It was originally called the Feast of Weeks or Harvest. It was celebrated at the end of the spring harvest. And how appropriate that on that same day, God began a new harvest of souls. It's interesting, during the Feast of Pentecost, two bundles of wheat were offered to the Lord. And the gospel of Jesus brought two bundles of humanity, so to speak, into the kingdom of God, both Jews and Gentiles. It's also interesting that Pentecost was observed in the anniversary of the giving of the law of Moses, the old covenant. And it was on the same day that God's new covenant went public and he began to pour out his grace upon the church. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Notice the prelude to the miracles that will follow. Good stuff happens when God's people come together in workable, wonderful unity. They were all gathered together in one accord. Suddenly, a wind blows through the room. Well, something like that. A mighty rushing wind blows through the room. Flames of fire begin to dance over the heads of the disciples. In the Old Testament, the opening ceremonies for both the tabernacle and the temple included fire falling from heaven. It was God's way of consuming the sacrifice and therefore giving His approval of the new sanctuary. In both the Old Testament, temple and tabernacle, the fire fell once at the dedication. And then after that, it was never repeated. And that's true here of the New Testament temple. We are a temple of a different sort. We're a spiritual temple. 
And at the dedication of that temple, the opening ceremonies of the church, again, fire falls from heaven. The little flames begin to dance over the heads of the living sacrifices. People who have dedicated their lives to serve the Lord and build up his kingdom. And it's interesting that though the wind and fire appear at Pentecost, they are never repeated in the book of Acts. It seems it happens once for the dedication, and then after that, it doesn't happen again. Another phenomenon, though, that accompanied this filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is repeated many times through the book of Acts, and that we find in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit did a miracle. He caused the disciples to speak in languages other than their native tongue. He freed their hearts and enabled their lips to praise God in an uninhibited manner. Tongue-tied disciples suddenly speak in pure and perfect praise. That's why the International Gallery, the people around the upper room, they marveled at this scene. They were in, the fe- in Jerusalem for the feast. But now they're hearing these Galileans speak in the native tongues of languages they couldn't have possibly learned or knew. People are speaking in a foreign language they never even learned. It was a miracle. And the euphoria of it all, it caused some of the people to conclude that, oh, these disciples, they're just drunk with wine. You remember what Peter says? He says, it's not possible. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) The assumption is, give them a little bit later, and who knows? Verse 11 clarifies what the disciples were saying. They were declaring the wonderful works of God. And understand, that is what the gift of tongues is all about. It is a supernatural means to praise and to worship God. Tongues is not a message from God to man. Tongues is a message from man to God, a message of praise and worship. Now, Peter is the man who offers to the crowds an explanation for what has happened. And notice, he turns to Scripture. Peter tells the crowd in chapter 2, verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And and here is a vital point you you shouldn't miss. Their experience was not just powerful or spiritual. It was also biblical. Peter was able to point to chapter and verse to explain what had happened that day. Guys, if your experience is not biblical, don't bother. What is not biblical can be lethal. This is why I reject extra-biblical experiences. Things like being slain in the Spirit or holy laughter. These are things that you can't find in the Scriptures. When you allow human experience rather than Scripture to set the standard for the church, you open yourself up to dangerous deception. Understand, I am all for experience. I want to experience as much of God as I possibly can. But I am leery of any encounter that is not encountered first in the pages of this book. And you should be too. In verses 17 and 18, Peter quotes the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verse 28 through 32 of his book. And it shall come to pass in the last days, Joel writes, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh... 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Joel predicted the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Not just on the priests. Not just on some special prophet. Not just on some elite group of saints. But on young men. On little girls. On men servants and maid servants, even on old men and old geezers. The Holy Spirit's for everybody, young and old, male and female. The day is coming, he says, and now he is for us. The Holy Spirit's available to any believer who will reach out in faith and ask. Remember Peter? This is the man who proved chicken before the rooster crowed. He now preaches with power. What a difference the baptism of the Holy Spirit makes. Peter is bold. He is fearless. He is in the face of the Pharisees, the very people who crucified Jesus, the angry mob before whom he feared and fled. These same folks are now those who he is preaching to. And he's telling them, you denied the Lord. He's confronting them face to face. Peter tells them in verse 23 that God planned the cross. It was his idea. But the people who carried it out, you, you guys, you're the ones who are responsible. He points to Psalm 16 and shows how the prophet, the psalmist David, predicted Jesus' death and resurrection. It was all foretold in Scripture in advance. Peter even takes a jab in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Ooh, what daring faith and boldness that took, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter concludes his message in verses 38 and 39. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. Notice, repentance and faith are the keys. Now, don't get confused by Peter's statement here. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We can go elsewhere, many places in Scripture, and be convinced that we don't have to be baptized to be saved. Salvation is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. We don't need to be baptized to be saved. What Peter's comment here reflects, though, is not a doctrine as much as it was the culture of the early church. You see, the early church didn't paint baptism as sort of an optional thing. It was a given. It was something that people just expected you to do. I mean, when people got saved in the book of Acts, they went home wet. I mean, you got saved, you got baptized. There was no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Believers saw repentance Faith and baptism as sort of a chain reaction. The question was never, do you have to be baptized? It was assumed that if your faith was genuine, you would want to be baptized. You would want to identify with Christ publicly. It was all sort of viewed as a package. Well, I think we should get back to that today. Verse 41 tells us that the opening day of the church saw 3,000 souls saved. Wow. You remember back in Exodus 32, you remember the opening day of the law? 
The day the old covenant was given to Israel, 3,000 people died. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the day the new covenant was given, 3,000 people were saved. The Holy Spirit worked powerfully. Life in the infant church was simple. The calendar wasn't cluttered with church bazaars and planning luncheons and board meetings. Verse 42 says that they met to study the Word, to pray, to fellowship, to take communion and worship God. Guys, the agenda was always spiritual. That's my desire for our church, that when we meet, may the agenda of the meeting always be spiritual. Notice, too, in verse 44, we're told that the believers had all things in common. In other words, they sold their material possessions and they pooled their resources. Later, we discovered that this may not have been a great idea, but it does demonstrate the love and the unity and the sense of responsibility that the people of the church had for one another. Hey, the sacrifice of Jesus was still fresh on their minds. How could they be selfish or stingy in dealing with each other? Verse 47 says, and the Lord added daily to the church, or the Lord added to the church daily. I love that. No gimmicks, no gadgets, no programs, no pushes, just the Lord adding to the church daily as many as should be saved. Catch this. When any church is a healthy church, God will add to that church. God wants to build up His church. Jesus says, I will build the church. And He is more than happy to add to the church when the church is being what God meant for it to be. God blesses the basics. Let's get back to them. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John bump into a beggar who asks for a handout. The man has been lame from birth. Daily his friends now bring him to the temple so that he can beg. Peter's pockets are empty But he does have faith to believe God for this man's healing. Peter tells the lame man in verse 6, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Once the Pope was counting the church's riches, when Thomas Aquinas walked into the room, The Pope pointed to the chests full of jewels and gold and he said to Thomas, he said, we can no longer say silver and gold have I none. Thomas Aquinas turned to him and said, yes, and neither can we say in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. How sad. It is a tragic indictment against the church today that we've become more prosperous than powerful. We trust more in our money than in the miracle-working power of God. As Peter told the man to rise up and walk, we're told that he took him by the right hand and lifted him to his feet. Now imagine taking the imagine you taking the initiative to reach down, grab a lame man by his hand, and pull him to his feet. This man had never walked. This man had been lame from his mother's womb. I mean, what, what, what if you pulled him to his feet and his, and his crippled legs just sort of collapsed and he fell and crashed his head against the, the pavement? I mean, what, what would other people think about you? I mean, the onlookers, I mean, what would they say about you? 
You know, there you are trying to pick up a lame man and, and having him just fall down and, you know, on the concrete. The man would probably sue you. I mean, can you imagine? This is not how you treat a handicapped person. You know, I'm not so sure any of the concerns that would have flooded my mind or your mind were even contemplated by Peter. Verse 16 indicates that God had given to Peter a gift of faith. That the faith that he used to lift up that lame man wasn't even his own. It was the faith that Jesus had given to him. It was a gift of faith. You know, sometimes we need that gift of faith. The next time you need a miracle, pray not only for your miracle, but pray for the faith to believe it. The gift of faith is one of the greatest and most wonderful gifts that God can give us. Instead, though, of buckling, the man's ankle bones, we're told, receive strength. Immediately, the beggar stood up and he begins to walk and he begins to leap for joy. Notice there's no rehabilitation. There's no muscle therapy. As Peter says in verse 16, God has given to this man a perfect soundness. Of course, this caused quite a stir among the Jews. They walked by this man every day. Now he's leaping and dancing through the temple. Verse 10 says they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now this man's legs may have been lame. But understand, this man was not a lame brain. He was smart. Verse 11 says he held on to Peter and John. I like that. A miracle had occurred, but he understood that there was more to be learned. And so he held on to Peter and John. You know, it's vital, I think, that we hold on to the miracles that God works in our lives. So many times God works a miracle, he delivers us, and then we just sort of move on to the next thing. Rather than holding on to that miracle, looking for the lesson that God wants us to learn from it. A miracle from God always comes with a lesson from God. Don't just enjoy the miracle without learning the lesson. Peter seizes the attention This miracle draws and he turns the spotlight off himself and onto the source of the miracle, Jesus. Verse 12 says, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Hey, it wasn't us. It wasn't because we were good guys or God owed us a favor. Hey, this was all done through the name of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to tell them, and he tells them about Jesus. He reminds the Jews how they killed the Prince of Life. What an ironic statement. Whom God raised from the dead. Peter says in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice if baptism was essential to salvation, why doesn't Peter mention it here? No, he says, Repent therefore and be converted. Repentance is the key. You have to be willing to change. You know, once a little girl was asked to define the word repentance. And this is how she did it. She said, it means feeling sorry enough to quit. I like that. Jesus works the changes, but he asks us to supply the willingness. And why should the Jews repent? Verse 19 says, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
That is a great description in one sense of what happens when you surrender your life to Jesus. Faith in Christ brings times of refreshing and how wonderful they are. But this term, times of refreshing, was also an idiom for the future kingdom age. The time yet to come when Jesus will reign over the earth for a thousand years, create a paradise here on this earth and redeem fallen nature. Times of refreshing. You remember the new covenant. The Jews were promised three things. That they would be regathered to the land. That they would be regenerated by the Spirit of God. And then God's kingdom would then be reestablished to them. Here's a provocative thought that I want to suggest. The Jews had already been regathered to Babylon at this time. They were there in Jerusalem. If they had repented at Peter's message and been regenerated by the Spirit, would God then have raptured the church at that moment and begun the process of reestablishing His kingdom on the earth? Of course, the Jewish establishment rejected Peter's message. And therefore, God turned His attention from the Jews and the door swung open to the Gentiles. But it is interesting to think what might have happened if the Jews at that time had embraced Jesus. It seems here he is offering them times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. The book of Acts covers a period of 30 years. And it contains accounts of about 30 miracles. Often we assume that life in the early church was an unending stream of miracles. You know, sort of a a miracle a day keeps the devil away kind of a thing. But apparently that was not what happened. There were flurries of the miraculous, punctuated, though, by long periods of persecution and tribulation. You know, Jesus warned them before he ascended into heaven, in the world you will have tribulation. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 4. For the first time in the brief church history, persecution raises its ugly head. Jesus, remember, encountered his stiffest opposition from the Pharisees. But the church's chief antagonists were the Sadducees. You see, the church preached the resurrection of Jesus. And the Sadducees had denied the existence of a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And that's who arrested Peter and John, the priests and the Sadducees. Yet despite the persecution, we're told in chapter 4, verse 4, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and catch this, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, how's that for church growth? In a matter of days, the church has grown from 120 in the upper room, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, that's 3,120. Now there's 5,000. Ooh, this thing's exploding. The family of the high priest attended Peter's trial. And he begins his defense in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now don't miss this preface. It's the key to Peter's power. Once again, he, the Holy Spirit comes and fills him to overflowing. When Peter speaks, he takes a bold stand here for Jesus. In verse 11, he quotes Psalm 118, a Messianic psalm. And he applies it to Jesus. Jesus is the stone that the engineers of Judaism have rejected. But God has made the chief cornerstone of a new temple, the church. For men to come to God, they first have to come to Jesus. And then he says in verse 12, 
nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name that made that crippled man walk is the only name through which a person can come to know God and be saved. And that name, Jesus Christ. I love verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marvel, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Wow. Colleges and seminaries, places we often call halls of higher education. But hey guys, there is no higher education than spending time with Jesus. These men didn't have the degrees. They didn't have the letters behind their name. But they had been with Jesus. And God used them in powerful ways. Verse 14 tells the Jews, it tells us that the Jews were unable to deny this miracle. I mean, after all, this man who had been lame for 40 years is now standing next to Peter. I mean, standing next to Peter. But hey, if you can't deny the miracle, the next best strategy is to try to intimidate the miracle workers, the messengers. And that's why they threatened Peter. Bub, we need you to zip your lip. No more talking about Jesus. But when Peter is forced to choose between serving God or serving man, to him the answer is obvious. He will never deny his master again. He'd been there, done that. He would never do it again. Guys, when you must choose, who do you obey? Man or God? The Sadducees and priests, they backed down for fear of the crowds. The people had seen the miracle. They had attributed it to God. And they released Peter and John. Now you would think Peter and John would go on a vacation. I mean, they had just dodged a bullet. Why not lay low for a while? I mean, the Mediterranean is not that far away. But no way. They return to the other disciples and together the church prays and catch this for more boldness. Hey, the timid troops that had forsaken Jesus in the garden are now his fearless followers. What a difference the power of the Holy Spirit makes. The prayer they pray in chapter 4 verses 23 through 30 is really a model prayer for all persecuted believers. Notice in verse 24, they get their eyes off the greatness of their problem. And they recall the greatness of their God. Oh, how we need to do that from time to time. In verses 25 and 26, they remind themselves that God isn't surprised by what's happened. He's predicted all this in advance. This hasn't caught him off guard. In verses 27 and 28, they remember that the powers that be are merely puppets to do the will of God. And then in verse 29 and 30, they pray for boldness to speak the word of God and for God to do even more miracles In Jesus' name. And because the disciples are determined to shake up this place, God does a little shaking of His own. The floor begins to rumble. And an earthquake occurs. (laughs) And the church leaves with boldness. In essence, the disciples are praying, Lord, deal with their threats against us and make us a greater threat to them. What a great prayer to pray. Lord, pour some fuel on the fire here. Rather than lay low, these disciples want to intensify their efforts. Rather than protection, they are praying for greater impact. 
Phillips Brooks once made this comment. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Guys, tonight, let's pray for God to work miracles in and through us to give us a boldness to confront our culture and community for Jesus. Verses 32 through 37 give us another glimpse of life in the early church. There was an incredible unity. Possessions were unimportant to these people. They were only concerned about each other. The believers were characterized by two things. Great power and great grace. The unity in the early church was so strong. That people were selling their possessions. They were sharing the proceeds with other believers. They would bring their gift and they would lay it at the feet of the apostles. And then the apostles would distribute it to those who had need. One such contributor was a Levite by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas was a landowner. The law, interestingly enough, prohibited Levites from owning property. But what the law couldn't change in Barnabas, the love of Jesus did. Barnabas apparently repented for his disobedience. He sold his land and he gave it to the Lord. There was another couple who also sold a piece of property. We read about them in Acts chapter 5. You might say Acts chapter 5 is one of those real drop-dead passages. I mean, it's a killer of a Bible study. It's one of those knock-em-over chapters. Ananias and Sapphira apparently were just dying to get into the Bible. And they succeeded. It reminds me of the two pastors who were discussing God's blessing on their churches. And one pastor was talking about his church's explosive growth. How that the church was just adding members left and right. He turned to the other pastor and he says, you know, he says, we've been blessed in such wonderful ways. He said, how many additions have you had? The other pastor sort of scratched his head and he said, well, we haven't had any additions, but we have had a few blessed subtractions. (laughs) And that's what we have here at Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. Understand, guys, these were the all-American couple. I mean, Ananias, old Ananias, he, he had been an NFL running back. And had later been a commentator on Monday Night Football. Sapphira, she, she had a job with Regis hosting a, a Jewish talk show. I mean, this was the all-American couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They were leaders in the community. They were models of success. And now they had both embraced Jesus Christ and joined His church. Now understand... God never commanded anyone to sell their land and pool their resources. This was something the church was doing voluntarily, just out of the love that God had put in their hearts. This was a church custom, not a divine command. But Ananias and Sapphira, you see, they didn't want to be left out. More importantly, they didn't want to look bad. You see, to this carnal couple, image was everything. You see, here was their problem. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look more spiritual than they really were. And so they lied to the Holy Spirit. They sold their possession 
And they said they were giving all of the proceeds like the others had, but instead they were really keeping back a portion for themselves. Guys, their problem is all too common with you and me. You know, it is a temptation for all of us to want to appear more spiritual than we really are. Oh, how we like to inflate our claims. How we like to talk one degree of devotion and yet live out another. We vow to give all, but then we hold a little back. The Lord really just wants us to be honest. Upfront, sincere, genuine before Him. Not two-faced. Not saying one thing in public and doing another thing, you know, in private. God wants us to be sincere. When Peter calls this couple on the carpet, they never get up. Ananias goes first. Sapphira later. They both drop dead. You know, what if God were to judge us to the same degree that he judged Ananias and Sapphira? What if suddenly the the judgment of God just sort of swept through our praise and worship service? We're We're all raising our hands and saying... Saying, I give all that I am, Lord, for all that you are. And and people just all over the sanctuary just start, boom, 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 boom. I give all that I am. God obviously has mercy on us, doesn't he? Remember earlier, we said that two things characterized the, the early church in Jerusalem. Great grace and great power. Now add a third ingredient. Verse 11 tells us great fear came upon all the church. Great power, great grace, and now great fear. And yet, amazingly, look in verse 13. The believers were increasingly added to the Lord. You know, people are attracted to sincerity, aren't they? They are attracted to purity. You know, it seems to me that God used a higher standard for the infant church in order to protect its purity. He did this little housekeeping here to enhance its power and its witness. I think we learn from the book of Acts one thing, and that is that purity and power go together. Right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, a new flurry of miracles occurs. Peter, uh, people began to lay their sick loved ones along the street so that when Peter walked by, they wanted just his shadow to fall upon them. There was such a climate and an atmosphere where people were being healed in that manner. Of course, it wasn't Peter's shadow that did the healing. It was the faith that his shadow triggered. God was blessing these people's faith. All this infuriated, though, the Jewish leaders. And in verse 17, the high priests have the apostles arrested and thrown into prison. But an angel comes in the middle of the night and arranges an early release. An angel busts the apostles out of jail. But guess where they go? Right back to the temple where they continue to preach about Jesus. This time the apostles are arrested again and brought before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. The high priest actually pays the disciples an unintended compliment in verse 28. He says to them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I'm sure they said, Praise the Lord, that's exactly what we intended to do. Peter tells him that when given the choice of obeying God or obeying man, the choice is easy. In verse 29 he says, 
we ought to obey God rather than men. You know, it all would have gotten really ugly and pretty bloody if it had not been for a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel stepped up with a little common sense. And he said to them, hey guys, if this Jesus movement is of God, no one can stop it. If it's not, just give it time and it'll fizzle out. It was good advice. It was good advice. And I think we should listen to that advice again. Because 2,000 years later, guess what's happened to this Jesus movement? It's still going strong. When will people learn that what Peter preached about Jesus was true? The Sanhedrin ordered the apostles flogged and then sent them away, commanding them to never again speak in the name of Jesus. Imagine their backs bruised and bloodied, black and blue, a collage of crisscross scars. You'd expect these apostles to spend a few weeks nursing their wounds, indulging in a little self-pity. But no, they are rejoicing. They leave honored to have suffered just a little for the one who has suffered for them so much. Verse 41 says, They departed rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Can you imagine? And soon, they are right back in the temple preaching again about Jesus. How do you stop such commitment? (laughs) The answer? You don't. Persecuting the apostles was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. You've just sent seeds out all over the place. Each attempt to silence their witness only strengthened their resolve and increased their boldness. Winston Churchill once said, A fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Well, based on that, the apostles were fanatics for Jesus Christ. What about you? Are you a wimp or are you a witness? Guys, let's all pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the example that we have in the book of Acts. Oh, how we need this example. Oh, how we need to pattern ourselves, Lord, after the church here in the book of Acts. Lord, do great things in our church. Lord, we long to see the miraculous. We long to see people healed, lame men walk, blind people see. Lord, we long to see people added to the church daily. Lord, help us to be about the work you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, to daily be studying the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread and worship. Help us, Lord, to be about these things. Help our agenda to always be spiritual, always growing, moving forward, being a healthy church. Because, Lord, we know that if any church is a healthy church, you'll add to that church. We love you, Lord. We ask for your blessing on our lives, our families, and our church. Lord, we want to count for Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which a man or woman can be saved. And tonight we pray this prayer in his name. Amen.